2: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: A killer slogan. I'm Jason Horton.
2: I'm Rebecca Lieb.
1: And this is Ghost Town.
3: It was 1988, and Dan Whedon, executive and co-founder of the Whedon and Kennedy Advertising Agency in Portland, Oregon, was pitching to Nike. The meeting was late, running long, and Whedon was under pressure, looking down the barrel of some very stressed-out Nike executives. Bear in mind, Nike at the time wasn't the sportswear powerhouse of today, no. In 1988, Nike was struggling— And it was almost single-handedly up to Whedon to freshen up Nike's whole look, its whole identity, to ensure it and his advertising agency's future. Nike, a pioneer of advertising as a whole, wanted something simple from Whedon and Kennedy, something timeless, something tough. Suddenly, Whedon had an idea. Just do it. Widely heard of now, the revolutionary Nike ad campaign wasn't just inspired by a serial killer, but it was nearly the exact words of one when facing his imminent death. Today in Ghost Town, we're talking about the disturbing origin of Nike's Just Do It ad campaign. On January 25th, 1964, Phil Knight, University of Oregon track star and his coach, Bill Bowerman, founded Blue Ribbon Sports, a company run out of Knight's car. The company's revenue came from distributing the Japanese shoe brand Onitsuka Tiger to athletes around Eugene, Oregon. Knight would roll up, sell Onitsuka Tigers at track meets, and make a little extra cash while he prepped for his own competitions. In its first year of business, Blue Ribbon Sports sold 1,300 pairs of Japanese running shoes, totaling around $8,000 worth of profit. Then, Bowerman took a leap of faith and made and designed his protege and colleague, Phil Knight, a pair of shoes himself. Though, according to Otis Davis, another one of Bowerman's University of Oregon runners, Bowerman made his first pair of shoes for him, shoes that might have helped take him to his gold medal in the 1960 Summer Olympics. But whoever got them first, Bowerman's first try at shoes were rough. They kind of looked like a men's ballet flat, put together with blue material, gray rubber, and allegedly fused with his wife's waffle iron. According to Davis, quote, Bill Bowerman made the first pair of shoes for me. People don't believe me. In fact, I didn't like the way they felt on my feet. There was no support and they were too tight. But I saw Bowerman made them from a waffle iron and they were mine. In 1966, Blue Ribbon Sports was doing pretty well and opened its first retail store at 3107 Pico Boulevard in Santa Monica, California. In 1967, the company expanded to Massachusetts, and in 1971, Bowerman continued in the fine tradition of using a waffle iron to make footwear, creating a new track shoe that would be aerodynamic, gripping, and lightweight. The new shoe was created in 1972 and called the Moon Shoe because the waffle-like tread—are you sensing a theme here?— resembled footprints left by astronauts on the moon. With more refinement, the shoe evolved into the Waffle Trainer, which in the early 70s led to the exponential growth of Blue Ribbon Sports. People loved the shoes so much that Blue Ribbon Sports called off their partnership with Anatsuka Tiger and rebranded as Nike, bearing a new logo, a clean, elongated checkmark, the signature swoosh, of course, which was unveiled on June 18, 1971. From the beginning, Nike loved an avant-garde advertising campaign— In 1976, the company hired Seattle-based John Brown and Partners to create their first ad, called There Is No Finish Line, which revolutionarily didn't feature one Nike product, nearly unheard of for corporations at the time. By 1980, Nike had a staggering 50% share in the U.S. athletic shoe market and hired Whedon & Kennedy as its ad agency to keep the party going. But Nike's popularity, as monolithic a brand as it was, was facing problems in the early to mid-1980s, Its biggest competitor, Reebok, had overtaken Nike as a more modern, cooler, fitness-focused sports retailer. Mick Jagger had worn Reebok freestyles in his Dancing in the Street music video with David Bowie. They were Jane Fonda's aerobics footwear of choice. Sybil Shepard wore an iconic bright orange pair of Reeboks to the 1985 Emmys. At that point, Reebok was the king of the athletics brand. And in 1989, was still raking in more cash than Nike annually, with $1.82 in sales compared to Nike's $1.71, still pretty good, billion. But let's roll back to 1988, in the Whedon-Kennedy ad agency boardroom, where a sweating Dan Whedon had slept very little the night before and was pitching ideas to a stressed, not very amused Nike. In this critical, high-pressure moment, Whedon summoned his final line, inspired by a fellow Portland native by the name of Gary Gilmore. Who is Gary Gilmore, you might ask? Gary Gilmore was a murderer. A double murderer, to be exact. Born on December 4, 1940, Gary Mark Gilmore was one of four sons born in Texas to an alcoholic father and a Mormon outcast mother, who together moved the family to Portland to avoid the law and escape a fake name their family had been living under, Kaufman. As an adolescent, Gary had good grades and allegedly an IQ test score of 133, but dropped out of the ninth grade and began engaging in petty crimes. In the early 60s, Gilmore was in and out of jail, getting drunk and into more and more trouble. In 1964, he faced assault and armed robbery charges, and while incarcerated, Gilmore was formally diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder with intermittent psychotic decompensation. In April 1976, when he was 35 years old, Gilmore was conditionally paroled and went to Provo, Utah to live with a cousin, trying to keep a job and get his life back on a sustainable and legal track. But the evening of July 19th, 1976, would begin a 24-hour spree for Gilmore. That night, he robbed and murdered a gas station employee in Orem, Utah, named Max Jensen. The next night, he robbed and murdered a motel manager in Provo named Benny Bushnell. Both murders were heartbreakingly similar. Both victims were married with children, students at Brigham Young University, each fearfully complying with Gilmore's demands. Gilmore ordered them both to lie down on the ground and then shot them in the head. While disposing of the 22 caliber pistol used in both homicides, Gilmore accidentally shot himself in his right hand and left a trail of blood leading to the service garage, where he had left his truck to be repaired before the second homicide. Garage mechanic Michael Simpson witnessed Gilmore hiding the gun in the bushes, thinking it strange, of course. Then he heard about the shooting on a police scanner, so he wrote down Gilmore's license plate number and called the police. After being caught by Utah police while attempting to flee the state, Gilmore was arrested and charged with the murders of Jensen and Bushnell. Gilmore's murder trial lasted two days, after which he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to execution. At the time, Utah had two methods of this punishment, firing squad or hanging. Gilmore was pretty open with his own guilt and longing to die. So believing a hanging could be botched, he chose the former, declaring tersely, I'd prefer to be shot. The execution was set for November 15, 1976, at 8 a.m. Against his own wishes, the ACLU kept getting Gilmore's execution date pushed, the last of which happened mere hours before it was scheduled. At a Board of Pardons hearing in November 1976, Gilmore remarked on the efforts of the ACLU to prevent his execution, saying, quote, They always want to get in on the act. I don't think they've ever really done anything effective in their lives. I would like them all, including that group of reverends and rabbis from Salt Lake City, to butt out this is my life and this is my death. It's been sanctioned by the courts that I die and I accept that. And he meant it. Gilmore attempted suicide twice, the first time on November 16th after the first execution date was pushed, and another time one month later. And then Gilmore was finally executed on January 17th, 1977 at 8.07 a.m. by firing squad at Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah. Now we've reached the point where Gilmore's death and Nike's ad campaign, never thought I'd write or say that phrase, artfully and disturbingly collide. We'll get there after the break.
4: Hey everyone, I'm Johnny. And I'm Tyler. And we are a live gay Canadian couple living in captivity. And we're the hosts of a podcast called That's Spooky. Yeah, and every Wednesday, we cover two cases plucked from the worlds of true crime, paranormal, called strange phenomenon, weird history, and beyond. Basically, anything that makes you say, ooh, that's spooky. Yeah, but we do it like we're talking about an episode of Reality TV. Except we also cite our sources like good nerds. Plus, on Fridays, we do a bonus episode of weird news and queer topics from all around the world so do you like ghost stories but not the ooky kooky sound effects that tend to come with them do you love true crime but cringe when they call gay couples lovers we do so if you want to hear about the scariest things out there in a way that won't break your psyche check out our podcast that's spooky on the morbid podcast network you can follow that spooky wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen early and ad free on the amazon music or wondery app
1: Hi. Hello. How are you? Hello. How are you doing? How are you doing today? We're checking in with you. Yeah,
3: or whatever day, A week. How how's your week? Yeah. How's, you never yeah, ask your that. Week? Yeah. You can ask that.
1: Just think about the last seven days.
3: Just take inventory. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and back again. Manic
1: Monday, Taco Tuesday. <laughs> That's right. Wet and Wild Wednesday. Wild ass Wednesday. Thursday, yeah. Freaky Friday. <laughs> Super salacious Saturday,
3: Saturday yeah. and Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. Jesus's Day. Yeah. Pretty good.
1: We want to say hello to anyone who's listening, supporting, spreading the good word of Ghost Town.
3: Hello, thank you.
1: We thank thee. We thank
3: every thee. Every day of the week. That's right. Every day, every minute, every second.
1: And what keeps Ghost Town up and running is our government. That's right. In the House. The mayors.
3: hmm hmm hmm
1: Someone with a case of the Thursdays.
3: <laughs> oh,
1: it's not quite Friday, but we're past Wednesday.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: It's college night somewhere.
3: Oh, yeah, we're rolling into the weekend, and we're behaving like it's the weekend. And no one loves
1: getting into that Friday spirit more than Ashley Matson. Hello. This person has a case of the Tuesdays. No excuses. Monday's over. It's not Wednesday oh, yet.
3: You're in the thick of it.
1: You should... Have yourself in gear for the week.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And no one does that better than Cat Chozel. Hello. Hump Day. <laughs>
3: no. We've
1: hit Hump Day. <laughs> I call it Wet and Wild Wednesday. Some people call it Hump Day. It's the middle of the week. Somebody brought in bagels. Somebody <laughs> brought in donuts. And somebody got to the good ones first. Tell you who loves Hump Day. Doesn't like when somebody gets the good bagels and donuts first, Casey Weber. Thank you. And I'll tell you who loves a Sunday fun day. Kicking back. Fighting Monday, holding on to Sunday as long as they possibly can. Hell yeah. Kicking back, kicking up, kicking it, (laughs) holding on, won't let go. Never gives up the fight. Ever, ever, ever. Charlie Gilbert. Hello. And our governor. Mm Mm-hmm. What's a day, what's a week, what's a month to this person? No. Above it, time is a construct Absolutely. to this person.
3: Transcends days, weeks,
1: calendars. Ugh. On the seventh day, our governor created the world. <laughs> that would be our governor. Avian, Avian noble. noble. If you want no ads, no chit chat, bonus episodes, there's one up now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You can get seven-day free trial. Listen to that bonus episode and leave. Yeah. Good. Do it. Good. Get out of here. Yeah. or you can you can support us a little more for $2 mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. You can do both. You can do either.
3: Really, whatever you want, I'm cool with.
1: Head on over to patreon.com slash ghost town pod. You want to get back into it?
3: I think we should get back into it. So on the morning of Gary Gilmore's execution for murdering two innocent people, he was transported to an abandoned cannery behind Utah State Prison. He was then strapped to a chair with sandbags behind him meant to trap the stray bullets. Five local police officers stood concealed behind a curtain with five small holes through which they aimed their rifles. This way, authorities rationalized nobody would know who would be the person who shot the fatal bullet. Before a priest gave him his last rites and cloaked him in his hood, Gilmore was asked if he had any last words, to which he simply replied, let's do it. Then Gilmore uttered his actual last words, Dominus Vibiscum, which in Latin means the Lord be with you. Appropriately, the priest replied, et cum spirito tuo, translating to and with your spirit. Then the state of Utah executed Gary Gilmore. Back in the 1988 Wheaton and Kennedy conference room, again, we are back here, Gilmore's death was fresh in ad executive Dan Wheaton's mind. It had struck him when the news came out. Somehow he remembered it for the last 10 years or so. Intermittently, it, again, had had some kind of mark on him. He said later in an interview, quote, we came up with five different 30-second spots. The night before a meeting with Nike, I got concerned because there wasn't an overlying sensibility to them all. Some were funny, some were solemn. So I thought, we need a tagline to pull all this stuff together. I wrote about four or five ideas. I narrowed it down to the last one, which was just do it. The reason I did that one was funny, because I was recalling a man in Portland. He was put before a firing squad, and they asked him if he had any final thoughts, and he said, let's do it. And for some reason, I went... Now, damn, how do you ask for an ultimate challenge that you're probably going to lose, but you call it in? So I thought, well, I didn't like let's do it. So I just changed it to just do it. And he pitched the idea immediately. Nike hated it. Tasteless, tone deaf, short, vague, but we didn't believed in it wholeheartedly for some reason. Quote, I went to Nike and Nike co-founder Phil Knight said to me, we don't need that shit. Whedon said in a 2015 interview with Denzine and Architecture and Design magazine, quote, I said, just trust me on this one. So they trusted me, and it went big pretty quickly. One of the first ads in 1988 that Just Do It would appear in featured Walt Stack, an 80-year-old marathon runner in San Francisco. Quote, creatives in the agency all questioned if we really needed it, said Whedon. Nike questioned it. I said, look, I think we do. I believe we have too many disparate commercials that don't add up to anything without a tagline. I'm not married to the thing. We can drop it the next round. A lot of shrugged shoulders at that point, but they let it ride. And then as the ad spread, Just Do It actually did take off. It was kind of the inclination that Whedon had. Quote, the general public surprised us all. Immediately, Nike started getting letters, phone calls, and so did Whedon and Kennedy. Nick DePaula, an NBA feature writer at ESPN, said that it wasn't just an incredible slogan, but Nike had at the time also struck gold with its own products. Both factors truly solidified the brand as a worldwide phenomenon. Quote, Not only was the slogan great and also approachable and vague enough that anyone could apply it to whatever it was they were trying to aspire to, DePaula said, but in that year of 1988, when the slogan was launched, they were coming on the same time of the Air Jordan 3, the Air Trainer 1, and the Air Revolution – which were three of the biggest shoes in the company history all at once. I know what you're thinking. Didn't Whedon feel guilty for co-opting the last words of a murderer? The answer is no. In another interview, Whedon talks about using Gary Gilmore's execution in the campaign and remembering what an imprint it had on him. He says, quote, I remember when I read that. I was like, that's amazing. I mean, how in the face of that much uncertainty do you push through that? So I didn't like the let's thing, and so I just changed that, because otherwise I'd have to give him credit. We then went on to create other hugely successful marketing campaigns for companies like Old Spice, Procter & Gamble, and Coca-Cola. And honestly, he seems like a pretty good guy. He eventually founded Caldera Arts, his own Oregonian arts summer camp for underprivileged youth. He was well-liked. He was someone that wanted to create positive change. For example, Whedon and Kennedy also grew exponentially from the opportunity and popularity of the Just Do It campaign, all the while gaining a reputation for being grounded, humble, and a progressive place to work. Kind of like an anti-madman situation. Says former employee Natalie Welch, quote, It really was kind of this humbleness and this idea that there wasn't a hierarchy. This was before hashtag Me Too and all that, and it felt like there was just really commitment to diversity and to just come here, be yourself, and that's kind of what you just felt every time you walked into the building. On September 30th, 2022, Dan Whedon passed away, after which the entire Whedon and Kennedy website was temporarily converted into a memorial page for him, listing his accomplishments and passions and closing out with a quote, an excellent one in my opinion, that definitely seems to reflect the company's philosophy from Whedon himself. Excellence is not a formula. Excellence is the grand experiment. It ain't mathematics, it's jazz. To this day, Whedon & Kennedy remains Nike's primary ad agency. And the Just Do It slogan? Likely, it's one of the most famous slogans in history, often called the best tagline of the 20th century.